Okay, well, please do have that open in front of you if you've got a Bible. That would be very helpful to you to have that uh, right there with you. Let's pray, and then we're going to take a quick look at the, the first part of this. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and as we've heard your word, and as we meditate on it, we ask, Lord, that you would bless us this morning. We ask that you would work in our hearts by the power of your spirit, that you would change us, you would shape us. As a potter shapes clay, you would mould us, that we would be the way you want us to be. Lord, help us to become more Christ-like and help us to grow in faith, to grow in our trust in you and in your plans. For we ask this in your name. Amen. In 2004, before our, our oldest child, Nathan, was born, most of you will probably be aware that Sarah and I did some time with African Inland Mission in Tanzania. Uh, and the plans to go there had been years in the making. A preacher from another overseas mission, uh, organisation called uh, OMF at the time, had visited our home church in Liverpool and he had laid out a challenge to the, congreg to the congregation there. He said something along these lines. Many a church agrees with sending 10% of their money, but what percentage of people will you send? Perhaps God has called you to an overseas mission field. It really sort of got us thinking. And we both agreed, Sarah and I, to pursue this. And first of all, we looked at some opportunities in the Middle East, but doors started to close on that. So we joined a prayer group that focused on the work in the, of the Africa Inland Mission. We applied as candidates to start by going short term with the possibility that we might, we might stay on longer. And an opportunity came up in Tanzania for us. And it seemed perfect. I mean, it was, it was on paper, it just looked ideal. So for Sarah, there was a, a clinic that was right in the heart of Dar es Salaam, the big city. Uh, and there was an enthusiastic missionary doctor um, who needed help. And we went out to, to visit. There was also, uh, for me, a school with an easy reach of there where I could teach. And there was a project in the city centre working with street children. All the ducks were lining up in a row, as it were. We went, on, we went on a little short-term couple-of-week visit to test the waters, to, to see what the opportunities really were, and we returned really excited. So we started to raise funds. We sold our car, we rented our house out, uh, and we got ready to go. A few days before our departure, the wheels started to come off. Firstly, the clinic where Sarah was supposed to be working, like a week or so before we were about to, to leave, closed. It was unexpected, completely unexpected, out of the blue, it closed. And secondly, Sarah announced that she was pregnant, which isn't really the most convenient thing when you're just about to go to Africa. But having come this far, we decided we would go, and then when we got there, we would figure things out on the ground. It was a tremendously hard nine months for us. that we, we, we'd, uh, we'd bought and packed up and prepared for shipping a motorbike which would help us to, to be able to get around and do projects, it was stolen from the warehouse in Liverpool. Sarah ended up working for, or I would say probably more accurately, being exploited by um, a, a really frustrating secular hospital in the town. 
Even the supplies, I'd spent ages gathering supplies from schools, tools and stuff, for doing street children projects. It all got stuck in red, red tape. Uh, eight months at the port. <laughs> I got it out a month before going home. And the pregnancy meant that Sarah had to struggle away from family support in extreme humidity. I mean, it's like 95 to 99% humidity every day. And then she would sit, well, I won't tell you, she'd try and get cool. Uh, we also had to let people down and finish before the school year finished. And I tell you what, we were really relieved to get back home to the UK. And we were left scratching our heads, wondering what on earth that past year had been about. It had all seemed so right from the start, and our intentions surely were right to give ourselves to missionary work, the willingness to say, here I am, send me. Isn't God supposed to be in control? How could our good plans be so far off from God's plans, apparently? Well, I suspect Paul and his little mission team must have felt a little bit that way at times, thinking to themselves, what is God doing? This doesn't make sense. Have we got things wrong? Did you catch it in the Bible passage we just read? Paul and his little team have just set out on a second missionary trip. Here's a little map uh, of, of where we're, we're going. And so the last time, setting out from Antioch, they got about as far as, and there's a little red dot up here for us, Marcus, pop it up on the screen, a little red dot will appear. They got as far as here, where the red dot is, that's not appearing, so never mind. Uh, and uh, so, so they got, um, they're visiting the towns of Lystra and Derby and Iconium. And the first trip had started out, if you remember, very differently from this one. In chapter 13, when they started on the first missionary trip, we read that the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, clearly spoke to the leaders of their home church and said, Acts 13, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. We also read that the Holy Spirit sent them on their way. I mean, it's a pretty good endorsement, isn't it, those two verses? But this new trip had started differently. It started just with an idea. And after a wobbly start, actually, and a difference of opinion between Paul and Barnabas, well, it did start to seem to be going quite well. Barnabas had gone to Cyprus, and Paul had headed over to those towns again there in southern Turkey. And having encouraged and checked up on the new churches that had been planted, Paul and his team had planned to push forward into the rest of the surrounding country. That's logical, isn't it? Evidently, they looked at the map. We just read it. All those strange place names. And they decided that the province of Asia, with its important influential cities and ports, would be the sensible next move to make. What could be wrong with a plan like that? Go where thousands of lost people are and preach the gospel. But verse 6 tells us, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. That's going to be one of the most unexpected verses in the Bible, really, hasn't it? When you look at it, in the sweep of things. If I asked you, when does God stop people from preaching the gospel? 
Well, the answer is in situations like this. <laughs> Why? Because that's God's plan and God knows best. We're not given any more information here, are we? You know, in actual fact, the, the ESV version of the Bible actually translates the word there more literally as forbidden. They're forbidden from preaching the word in that particular area. That's strong, isn't it? It's surprising. Of course it is. But they work with it. They head further north, as you know, is the next logical step, and they attempt to go into Bithynia. But verse 7, look. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Got quite a lot of ringing in my ears. I don't know if that's bothering anyone else, but it's echoing around my head. <laughs> Sorry. That's an interesting verse again, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a surprise. The Spirit did not allow them. So this team of missionaries, you, know, you can see them, they're itching to break new ground here, to reach new towns and new peoples with the good news. But the Holy Spirit keeps knocking them all over the country like a pinball. Twice now, God's halted the plans of his servants and has stopped the good work of preaching the gospel. Verse 8 tells us they now head down to Troas on the coast and they wait there to figure out what to do. Let's pick it up in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, a lot of times, Christians stress about what is God's will for me? Yeah? You know, as a youth minister, you get that question over and over again. What are God's plans? And especially at the beginning of life, we want to know, don't we? Well, this is not comprehensive, but let me give you three lessons on guidance just before we finish this section from chapter 16 here. Three lessons on guidance. First one is this. First, you have your standing orders. That's the first lesson in guidance. And grown-ups, I'm not talking about regular payments out of your bank when we talk about standing orders here. The military version of it, the military definition of standing orders is, and I quote, a military order or ruling that is retained irrespective of changing conditions. So that's like a set of instructions and procedures for you to obey by default. Regardless of what else is happening around, around you, you're going to obey them. It's like, for example, recruits saluting superior officers. You're just going to do it. There's not a circumstance where you don't. Unlike the first, sent, the first uh, missionary journey, this second one arose out of a conversation, just out of a conversation between Paul and Barnabas. The decision arose out of a pastoral kind of duty of concern. They just wanted to go and visit the churches and encourage them. And that's, that's right, isn't it? And likewise, we have our standing orders. Love God with all your heart. There's no occasion you stop doing that, okay? There's no occasion when that's not a standing order for you. Love your neighbour as yourself. Seek first God's kingdom. Earn a living, care for your family, make disciples. Love, encourage and care for your fellow Christians. We could go on, couldn't we? 
the scriptures are not silent on what our standing orders are. We don't need special guidance to tell us to do those things. We do them until instructed otherwise. Second thing then here, you don't need to know the whole picture. That's quite important actually. Two times God has stopped them from executing their plans. God is more than capable of stopping people, isn't he? I'm always reminded of a friend of mine, a chap called Paul Knox, actually. He was applying for a, a job with the Scripture Union, and he'd had this feeling it wasn't the right thing. And he was on his way to the interview and sitting on the train, and he just felt as if something compelled him. A voice in his head said, stay on the train, and he just went past the stop. He just thought, no, this isn't, this isn't right. God can close a clinic God can keep stuff in the port. For this team, divine guidance doesn't reveal the plan that God has for them very far in advance. All they know on each occasion is no. No, not there, not that way. That's all they've got at the moment. Between roadblocks or without closed doors, we are simply to proceed day to day with decision-making prayerfully in in accordance with our standing orders. That's what we're to get on with, isn't it? Often we make plans and we make them with our best intentions, but God says, no, not there, not that way. And we're back to square one. Don't be discouraged. If you knew the whole picture, where would faith be? God has given you and I just enough guidance so that we still have to depend on him and to trust him day by day, hasn't he? Just enough guidance that it would be foolish not to check in on him regularly and just just keep tabs. Third thing, just briefly then, God has given you other Christians to help you. So even after, look in the text here, even after a vivid vision that Paul's had, he still discusses it with his friends in verse 10. He doesn't get up and just, you know, blast away. You might well imagine that Paul was so burdened with wanting to preach to this world full of lost men, women and children that he often had these kind of dreams. But this was a particularly vivid one, but he doesn't get up and then announce over breakfast, I've had a word from the Lord, boys. Because when you talk like that, you actually bind people's consciences, don't you? If they had a problem... If they've got a problem with what you're saying when you say something like that, now you're inferring that actually to disagree with you is to disagree with God. So be very careful about insinuating that you're speaking on God's behalf. Even Paul doesn't do that here. Apparently there was a discussion followed by a conclusion and all agreed with the outcome. Verse 10, they will go to Macedonia. So there's three things then. Three things to help guide you through life. First of all, follow your standing orders. Here they are. Know your standing orders and follow them. Keep depending on God. Talk to him all the time. And talk to other Christians, wise Christians. It's good stuff, really, isn't it? It's very practical, I think. Well, we're going to sing some songs, uh, sing a song before we carry on now here. So the hero of the book of Acts, you see, is not 
Paul or Peter. You're starting to see that emerge, aren't you, even as we go through this story. It's not Peter, Paul, it's not Barnabas. It's the mighty, mighty saviour, Jesus. So we're going to stand, we're going to sing Mighty, Mighty Saviour, our children's song. Let's have that passage still open in front of us from Acts 16. We're going to start looking at verse 9 together now. Verse 9. And so here you've got Paul and his friends. They're in Troas and they're wondering what to do and where to go. I want to just focus a little, just for a second, on that verse that we read earlier. Have a look at verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there's Paul tucked up in his bivy bag. And that night he has a vision. It's a powerful and it's a vivid dream. And he sees a man from Macedonia. I wonder if you can picture what that's like. I wonder how he knew it was, he was from Macedonia. Maybe it's the accents. North of Greece. And he's standing before him and he's begging. Come over and help us. It's a really vivid picture, isn't it? A man begging, come and help us. And it disturbs Paul enough that the next morning he reasons with his, with his friends that they ought to catch the next ship to Samothrace. I wonder, you know, just think about that for a second. Have you ever heard that kind of a cry? I wonder if any of us have been aware of that, the begging of a lost world. It's a very foreign thought to us, isn't it? People seem to be so hard and so closed. A world saying, come and help us. Don't you think Chesterfield might be crying for help? What do you think? You'd have thought with a vision like that, Paul and the boys would cross the sea and be greeted by crowds of desperate people waiting to hear the gospel. Thousands saved, like at Pentecost, something like that. But the interesting thing is that, no, in, in fact, generally speaking, as you read on, you find that the Macedonians are very frosty to the gospel. We're told of very few converts. We've only really got two households mentioned in that area that get saved. And before we get to the end of chapter 16, actually Paul and Silas have been falsely accused of making trouble, haven't they? And they've been beaten and whipped and thrown into prison. Now this vision is no indicator of the states of people's hearts, is it? It's Evidently, the average man on the street couldn't care less about Paul or his message. And they certainly didn't seem to be looking for anyone to help. That sounds a bit more like Chesterfield, doesn't it? You know, the Bible describes the state of mankind, of men, of women and of children, those who do not know Jesus, as being dead. Well, obviously not physically, but dead towards God, dead towards him. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, as for you, and he's writing this letter uh, to Christians, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. People then are dead towards God because of their sin. Dead people don't beg, do they? I wonder, can we hear 
begging, though. Listen carefully. Can you hear the neighbourhood around us begging? Please come help us. No? I would say that's because they're in such a desperate need they don't even know how to beg. They're too dead to beg. But we need those who can hear it, don't we? The truth is, for those who can, when you tune in, it's deafening as you see the need around you. This town is full of dead people. This neighbourhood is full of wretched, lost and blind people. Desperate for the words of life to fall on their ears so that they might live. Brothers and sisters, young people here as well, won't you go to them? Go to them with those words of life. Only Jesus can offer eternal life. Only Jesus has lived that perfect life and died a cruel death in our place so that our sins can be taken away. Only Jesus rose again to bring you and I to the certain hope of salvation. Only Jesus can offer rescue as a free gift for all who will put their trust in him. So there we have Paul and his team, and Paul's received this vision, a cry from a people who will not cry out for themselves, and a vision must be given to cry out for them, so desperate is their need. And so Paul's team head for the big Roman colony in Macedonia, Philippi, we've landed. We're going to be doing a series going through the book of Philippians in just, we're going to be starting that in just two weeks' time. And so this is a really good opportunity to get a little bit of background as to how it all started. Philippi was an important city. It was a proudly Roman stronghold right on the main road to the east. Uh, it was actually the sort of place where um, you'd, you'd go to retire. As a, it's like, almost like a Roman retirement colony in, in, in many ways, but very little Rome in Greece. And so it was full of rich citizens and important officials passing through. It was a great place for business, a great place for trade. And one such trader was an apparently wealthy businesswoman called Lydia. Paul and his team decide to set up camp for a few days. In verse 12, you can see that. And their usual strategy was to go down to the synagogue and to start reasoning with the Jewish community. That's what we've seen everywhere, isn't it? But now they're in pagan Europe. The Gospels just landed in Europe. And in Philippi, there doesn't seem to have been much of a Jewish presence. However, in the absence of a synagogue, so when a town didn't have enough of a Jewish community to have a synagogue, that community would still have met in some kind of a makeshift location. And so, knowing that, that's where the team head. Let's pick it up in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So down by the river, they discover this little prayer place where the women are sitting down and praying. 
This is outside of the city. It's away from the pagan temples. It's a gathering of women um, who wanted to pray to the God of the Jews, the God who is the creator God. And they're open to hearing Paul's message. Well, we've encountered people like this already, haven't we, in Acts? People who are are God-fearing, God-worshippers and not Jewish. One woman was named Lydia. And she was a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth, I'm sure many of you know, was, was only really used by the mega rich and by the royal families of, of the world. She would have been an important and an influential woman, a businesswoman supplying the finest materials to the top fashion houses. And she's also a worshipper of God. She's not Jewish, but something has convinced her that the big answers that, to the questions that she had could not be found in worshipping any of the gods of Rome or Greece, the petty gods of the pantheons. Like Cornelius the centurion, if you remember him, she's become a god worshipper, a worshipper of Yahweh, the god of the Jews. But she's worshipping really a god that she doesn't know. She's still dead in her sins. But the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is starting to breathe into her corpse and breathe life there. She lacks one important thing. She doesn't know about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're missing him, there's no way to the Father. And as Paul preaches his message all about Jesus, life suddenly comes to the dead bones of Lydia. Verse 14 puts it very plainly, doesn't it? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It wasn't her. She didn't open her heart. Paul didn't convert her with persuasive words. God did it. We're supposed to to see that, aren't we? It's put very plainly. See, all we can do is preach. I find that really, really encouraging. Share the gospel with people that we meet. But it is God who is the one who saves. That ought to really encourage us. There's no such thing as a bad go at sharing the good news. We might get muddled. We might get confused. As long as we get that simple message across, we're not to judge our efforts by the results that they bring. That's the point, isn't it? I could tell you about some shockingly bad sermons uh, that I've heard. A friend of mine who had the gospel straight, even though his Bible knowledge was really quite shaky. I mean, he misunderstood half the words in in the scripture he he was trying to preach. And yet in those sermons, people got converted. It's staggering to hear. We just sow and water. God is the one that brings life. It's always been that way. And here we see salvation comes to Lydia's house. The first convert in mainland Europe. Verse 15. When she and her members of her household were baptised, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so in closing, really, as we finish up this morning, I want you to get this, see the size here of what God has done. 
Paul and his team, and just get the sweep of this, have travelled hundreds of miles, mostly probably on foot or you know, in, a, in a boat, but they've travelled all the way from southern Turkey to Macedonia up in northern Greece. And they've done that so that they could talk to a woman, verse 14, from Turkey. Kind of weird, isn't it? God has brought Lydia from Thyatira. He's drawn her to himself, weaning her away from paganism, the paganism she's grown up with, all those false gods. He's brought her to Philippi, to the river that day, so she could hear the good news about Jesus from these weary travellers who've just arrived. Why? Why all the convoluted plans? Wouldn't it have just been easier to go straight through Turkey planting churches? Well, not according to God's plans. We may never know why, but God knows best. We make plans. God so often overrules. We preach. God saves. Important lessons for us to learn. You know, three years after we returned from Tanzania, from that dreadful trip, Sarah and I had moved down to, to Surrey, where I spent a few years as a, as a youth worker. And one weekend, we decided that we would head up north and drop in on our old church in Liverpool. It was a large congregation, and no one knew we were coming. And we sat at the back, and we watched the service. And uh, as part of the service, uh, a girl called Heather whom we hadn't really known very well when we were there, we sort of knew of her, was brought up onto the stage. And she'd just spent the last couple of years training to go out as a full-time missionary in Thailand, where I believe she still is. She was asked, so Heather, what made you decide to give up everything and go to Thailand? And she replied, well, a number of years ago, I watched Andy and Sarah Bruins go off to Tanzania. And I thought, if God wants them to go, Andy and Sarah, maybe he wants me to go too. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the knowledge that though often we cannot make sense of our path in life or the things we see happening in the world, you are reigning over all and you are working out everything in conformity to the purpose of your will. So help us as we go into this new year to do those things that you have commanded us to do and to rest day by day in your sovereign care. For we ask all of this in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.